Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast, where I read the journals so you don't have to. This is episode 42 for the month of July 2020. I saw a few more reviews that were left on iTunes. Thank you so much for that. This really does help others discover the podcast, as we now have about 3,000 regular listeners, which makes me very happy. And if you have articles you want me to read, send them to me at info at GI Pearls or on Twitter at GI underscore Pearls. All right, let's go crack open those journals. Lots of articles these days sing praises to underwater colonoscopy. There are definitely some advantages, but if you're like me and prefer air, there are situations where you can try doing some things underwater. Joseph Anderson from Dartmouth wrote a clinical perspective piece about what he does with water and certain situations where using water only for colonoscopy would be helpful. Some of the examples include patients with known redundant colons. Trouble usually arises in the sigmoid, so turn off air, press down the water pedal, flood the left colon, and advance. Frequent looping is another scenario, especially if stiffening the scope or changing position doesn't help. Honestly, I don't think I stiffen the scope very often. Sometimes it's easier to reach the cecum when it's water-filled rather than distended with air. But there are several other scenarios that are described here where water can be helpful. Unsedated colonoscopy is one of them. To tell you the truth, actually, I do all my unsedated colonoscopies with air and don't seem to have a big issue with it. But probably on insertion, using more water will probably help. Resection of large polyps, as I discussed in episode 41, could be a definite advantage as well, with less clipping and less lifting being used, at least in that article. One point raised by Joe here is that, as far as we can tell, based on some randomized trials, water immersion versus CO2, there is no increase in adenoma detection rate, so keep that in mind. I guess it's not inferior, maybe, but definitely not superior to using CO2. Another point, if your colon is not perfectly clean, your water will be muddy and you won't be able to see anything anyway. So water versus CO2 in context of colonoscopy is certainly a useful tool, but not an all-in solution. Speaking of difficult colonoscopies, incomplete colonoscopies really suck. You really feel defeated if you can't reach the cecum. Even if it happens rarely, it really still sucks. But sometimes it's best to let someone else have a go at it. And so long as you don't do it too often, it's not a big deal. Many times patients are sent for imaging to try to find polyps or something else, like a reason why you can't reach the cecum. Patients usually get barium animus and CT colonographies. So how useful are these barium enemas and CT colonographies? One person who would have the answer is Doug Rex, as his group gets referrals to have repeat colonoscopies from failed outpatient procedures. So they studied these. Over 700 patients in this study were referred for incomplete colonoscopy, and 65 of these had some imaging done prior to this in the past few years just because they couldn't complete the colonoscopy. So a good way to assess how sensitive these radiographic tests are for endoscopic findings. This was a retrospective chart review type of study. Good news is that, at least in this study, the rate of completion of colonoscopies on the second try by someone else was 97.4%. So that's fantastic. So no surprise, and I quote here, we found that CTC or barium animus had poor sensitivity for identifying polyps found on repeat colonoscopy. And there were substantial numbers of false positive lesions. Sensitivity was low for lesions of all sizes, histology and location in the colorectum, end quote. So at least this small retrospective series basically says that you're probably wasting your time and your patient's time if you can't complete the exam and you send them for imaging. I like this quote from the conclusion of the paper. 
Radiographic imaging could be reserved for situations where exclusion of cancer is the only clinical goal. End quote. In all other scenarios, I think it's reasonable to just have someone else try a colonoscopy. And yes, the authors are biased, of course. And I mean, they run a referral center for difficult colonoscopies. But I can't come up with a good reason as to why they would be wrong in this case. So this is a good paper and should give you a pause before you order that CT colonography or barium enema if you are unsuccessful at getting to the cecum. Ever heard of celiac ataxia or gluten ataxia? I've never seen a patient with such severe manifestations of celiac disease. And there's a lot of debate of how and when does celiac disease affect the brain. There's even this whole thing about gluten sensitivity and brain fog which is a whole nother can of worms that we keep closed for the moment. This next paper published in Gastroenterology is called Cognitive Deficit and White Matter Changes in Persons with Celiac Disease, a population-based study. They looked at about 100 patients with celiac disease versus population controls who had MRI of their brains done, as well as some other tests. Turns out that the patients with celiac disease were more likely to have cognitive deficit, indications of worsening mental health, and even evidence of white matter damage in the brain compared to match controls. There's even a big graph showing that there is slower reaction times in patients with celiac disease. Several issues with this paper, celiac disease was often self-reported, so this makes it a completely backward study. There's also no evidence of documentation of active disease, disease duration, or even if they're on gluten-free diet consistently. Dare I say that the patients with self-reported celiac disease may have other reasons for cognitive impairment. And the other thing is, if you're sticking patients into MRI machines, why can't you test their blood a couple of times? Just makes no sense. There are new techniques coming out to make your stomach smaller without resorting to surgery. Now, this is a new method, an endoscopic method of making your stomach smaller, using a fancy endoscope with four working channels, through one of which you put on a daughter scope so that you can actually visualize what you're doing in the stomach. And through the other three channels, you put your devices to grasp the stomach, anchor it to itself, and cinch the stomach to make it smaller. This report in GIE is a case series of 10 patients to see if it could actually work. Technical success rate was 100%. It took about 100 minutes to do this thing, and there was 60% reduction in gastric body length. Six patients went straight home from the procedure and four were admitted to the hospital for nausea vomiting after the procedure, and they stayed in the hospital for a couple of days. Then they were placed on a liquid diet for 45 days and met with a dietitian. Average weight loss was 15% plus or minus 7%, so that's not too bad. Considering there is no major surgery, that really happened, and six months later, patients doing pretty well. Patients had their blood pressure checked, and it did go down into normal range, with over half the patients stopping their blood pressure meds altogether. Some even decreased their insulin requirements, which is ultimately matters a lot. One notable thing, this procedure is kind of a fake sleeve gastrectomy, and major issue with that is reflux. All three patients with GERD in this cohort had no GERD at the end of the study. So that's encouraging too. Overall, this sounds very promising. Weird that I didn't see a table or graph for BMI, pre and post procedure. It would be nice to see individual weight loss numbers as well. It's only 10 people, so it shouldn't be too hard to report. Anyway, looks promising. When doing EMR the old-fashioned way, if there is such a thing, snaring is done hot. But as we are all aware, revolution is at hand and cold snaring is taking over. So my comrades, where do you stand? 
This next study from Australia looked at what happened when you switch off the heat and only do cold snare polypectomies for these large polyps. They looked at over 160 large polyps, meaning they needed mucosal resection to remove them. This was a retrospective study, by the way, and they looked at what was seen at polypectomy site on first surveillance colonoscopy. Out of 164 polyps, at first surveillance, only 9 had residual tissue at polypectomy site. That's just over 5%. Conventional EMR recurrence rate is felt to be something like 15 to 20 percent, although I think it's much lower these days. Two things I want to say. One is 5 percent residual polyp at these large polyp sites. What this means to me is that don't forget to do repeat exam. This is important, otherwise why bother to remove large polyps at all? So you got to look again to make sure you didn't leave anything behind. If you don't do this technique, please watch the video on the website and consider doing it. It's pretty cool. I've been doing this for quite a while. Having said that, the authors are right. Retrospectively, this looks great, but we do need a randomized trial of hot versus cold, not only to settle this debate, but we also need it so we don't just say this really is better to do it cold, just because we feel like it's true. This is a good paper and also reviews major papers that looked at cold snare polypectomy for large polyps in the past, so definitely worth your time. Functional heartburn remains a salty pickle, and this is an AGA clinical practice update on functional heartburn expert review. I'm just going to read off the best practice advice. One, consider diagnosis of functional heartburn when a patient has heartburn while on maximal PPI therapy, meaning twice a day. Best practice advice two, diagnosis of functional heartburn requires upper endoscopy with esophageal biopsies to rule out anatomic unmucosal abnormalities, esophageal high-resolution manometry, and pH monitoring off of PPI or pH impedance on PPI for patients with proven GERD symptoms. Huh, so if you have proven GERD, you can also have functional GERD on top of that. Best practice advice number three, overlap of functional heartburn with proven GERD is diagnosed based on ROME4 criteria, where you are on maximal therapy but have persistent symptoms. I, I guess this assumes that there's normalization of pH impedance once you are on maximal therapy. Best practice advice number four, PPIs have no therapeutic value in functional heartburn, exception being proven GERD that overlaps. This is probably the most important advice, meaning that if your patient doesn't have any reflux on multiple studies off of therapy, why are you throwing PPIs on them? Best practice advice five, you can certainly try TCAs, SSRIs, tegaserod, or H2 blockers. Best practice advice six, if all else fails, acupuncture, hypnotherapy can be used as monotherapy or adjunctive therapy. It's a little bizarre to go for acupuncture for functional GERD symptoms, but hey, if it works, go for it. Best practice advice seven, don't do crazy things like sending these patients for anti-reflux surgery. And that is all the advice that these experts that compose this review have for us. Another thing to mention here is that the whole business of testing on or off PPI. Now, this is an area of debate, of course, so I'm really not taking sides here. The theory goes that testing off therapy will reveal patients who have both real acid reflux, if you can call it real, as well as functional slash overlap symptoms. So the best practice advice number two doesn't make much sense when they recommend pH impedance for patients with proven GERD symptoms while diagnosing for functional heartburn. Well, how do you have proven GERD if you haven't done any of the studies? Anyway, if you really are convinced that someone that doesn't have GERD doing studies off PPI makes a lot of sense. Other than that, I'm not sure what to say about when it's a good time to do study off of therapy. 
Let's briefly talk about TCA in functional heartburn. There was a trial of TCA for functional heartburn, an actual randomized clinical trial, believe it or not. You know what it found? You would think that it found that heartburn symptoms get better. It's part of the best practice advice. But guess what? Nope. And I quote, patients receiving imipramine did not achieve higher rates of satisfactory relief of reflux symptoms than did patients receiving placebo. Intention to treat analysis 37 versus 37%. But there was improvement in quality of life, 72 versus 61. Only on per protocol analysis, but not on intention to treat analysis, which did not reveal any difference between imipramine and placebo. So while we use TCAs and SSRIs, there's very little evidence that they do anything for heartburn. Another treatment option used to be tegacerod, which did decrease frequency of heartburn, but there were issues with tegacerod due to excess cardiovascular events. Currently, it's approved for IBSC in women under the age of 65. I don't really think it's a good option for functional heartburn patients. Quality of life for patients with functional heartburn can be quite terrible, so use whatever else works, acupuncture, hypnotherapy, meditation, breathing exercises. Help them control their anxiety. So you think the story of CD treatment is over? We've got nice guidelines telling you to treat with fecal microbiota transplant if you get recurrent C. diff and which antibiotics to use when. And we're done, right? Not so fast. There are as many ways to administer microbiota transplant as there are orifices in the human body. And then you have this whole deal about frozen poop versus fresh poop. And when fresh, how fresh? Now that I've disgusted you, let's look at this next paper. The title is Superiority of Higher Volume Fresh Feces Compared to Lower Volume Frozen Feces Microbiota Transplant for Recurrent C. diff. And by the title, you've guessed that fresh poo is better. But this was a retrospective review of patients who underwent FMT for C. diff infection, looking at two community-based poo transplant centers. They looked at over 100 patients follow-up for about one year, and lo and behold, the success rate for frozen poo was 64% versus 98% for fresh poo. So fresh FMT is better, right? Not so fast. Turns out that all of the patients with fresh poo were done at one center and frozen at another center. Hmm, do you see a problem here? The authors also argued that the more poo you use, the better it is. Both fresh and frozen poo works, but which one is better? I think the jury is still out. The first TIPS, the transjugular intrahepatic shunt, was done in Germany in 1988 by Goetz Richter, and TIP has come a long way since then, including the use of covered stents became standard practice in the early 2000s. Technical success for the procedure is in the high 90s, and patency rates at one year are something like 80%. But as good as TIPS is these days, it's important to know when and when not to get it for a specific patient. This is how I approach it topic for the Red Journal in the month of June, and it's written by lovely folks from UCLA. There are many advantages to TIPS, mainly decrease in portal hypertension, so less ascites and less variceal bleeding. There are some disadvantages, mainly the fact that you will make encephalopathy worse. Why I am discussing this article is that it has a cool table, table 2, where they compared all the indications for TIPS placement from ASLD, easel, and American College of Radiology. Indications are all listed here. Well, first of all, radiology guidelines basically say put it in for anything, whereas the ASLD guidelines, not updated since 2009 by the way, say maybe you shouldn't do this for hepatorenal syndrome, hepatopulmonary syndrome, 
and there's no mention of decompression of systemic collaterals prior to abdominal surgery. I understand the last one. I, don't, I think hepatologist is not the final person to decide if someone needing abdominal surgery needs a shunt or not. Certainly, they can give an opinion, but I think surgeons are the ones driving the bus here. This reminded me of a case I read when I wanted to know what happens to caput medusae after tips. And as many of you already know this, but it disappears as it did in the case of a 65-year-old man with HIV cirrhosis who was found to have colorectal cancer and needed right hemicolectomy. But caput medusa was standing in the way. HVPG was 11, by the way. Meld was 12. So TIPS was done with embolization of large collaterals at the same time. And later on, he went for surgery of his colon and did okay. But back to how I approach it. There are really two big scenarios where you should consider TIPS. One is for variceal bleeding. Best data arguably comes from the 2010 randomized trial published in the New England Journal basically arguing that early tips is the way to go. Some of the data has recently been challenged, so I say the jury is still out, but I think early tips may be better at centers that do high volume tips and do better job at putting them anyway. The other scenario where tips is useful is refractory ascites. Here, hepatic encephalopathy is a major concern. If there is no encephalopathy, the answer is a little simpler, and many centers actually start prophylaxis with lactulose plus or minus rifaximin after tips there are many other indications, including hepatic hydrothorax and need for abdominal surgery, as we discussed. So go read this if you're on the fence about doing tips in your patient. In the methicin use has been associated with reduced risk of post-ARCP pancreatitis, at least in high-risk patients, and we already have a clinical trial to back up this idea from 2012. So you would think that most docs will use it, at least for high-risk patients, you would think that the rate of post-ARCP pancreatitis would be dropping, at least based on the results of that 2012 clinical trial, there was a 46% relative risk reduction. So Zach Smith from Case Western looked at the fancy Watson Health database to see what happened to trends in post-ARCP pancreatitis prophylaxis from 2009 to 2018. And this was a review of 26,000 ERCPs. We're only talking about high risk here, since the benefit of endomethacin is not clear in regular ERCPs, high risk is defined as ERCPs done for SOD spasms, SOD manometry, and those where sphincterotomy is done. But basically, we're talking about sphincterotomy here, since another study basically reduced the number of ERCPs done for SOD to a very low number. And this review shows that the use of rectal endomethacin has steadily increased since 2012, What's interesting is at the same time, the rate of using pancreatic PD stents has dropped from 40% down to 4%. And over the study period, there was no change in the rate of post-ERCP pancreatitis. This is really bizarre since pancreatic duct stenting sometimes is felt to be increasing the rate of pancreatitis potentially instead of preventing it. But maybe they were preventing pancreatitis after all. I mean, there is a reason people are using them. And the rates of using them dramatically changed, but there was no change in pancreatitis unless indomethacin kind of rescued the situation here, since there was an increase in use of that, it's still a little bizarre. I think the authors are kind of driving at the point of saying that the indomethacin use kind of rescued the reduction in pancreatic duct stenting use in terms of rates of pancreatitis. And they call it the unintended consequence of indomethacin use. And they hope that the trend will reverse. Clearly, authors believe in both stent and the indomethacin together, maybe. One more point to be made, and I really read this article in hopes that the authors would acknowledge this fact, and they sure did. 
Indomethacin used to be very cheap, maybe a couple of dollars per pill, but now indomethacin costs much more. And here's a quote from the paper. Review of publicly reported 2019 hospital charge masters in California. We found that the price of 100 mg of rectal indomethacin at five hospitals that disclosed these charges ranged from $650 to more than $5,000. Oof, that's an expensive pill. Anyway, these are very interesting trends, and I hope for your high-risk ERCPs you do use indomethacin because despite the fact that sometimes it costs $5,000, it might prevent pancreatitis. Adenoma detection rate, the gold standard by which all endoscopies are judged, and many factors can influence this. How about procedure delays? This next study looked at over 7,000 colonoscopies, over a third of which were delayed. About a third of cases that were studied were morning cases. Overall, ADR was 25% for both morning and afternoon cases, and ADR in cases delayed less than one hour was 26% versus 23% with cases delayed by more than one hour. Also, somehow delayed starts were associated with shorter interval withdrawal times in mornings, but not in the afternoon cases. So, compared to cases with a delay of less than one hour, adenoma detection rate was reduced by 12% in those with a delay of one to two hours, and 19% in those cases where the colonoscopy was delayed by more than two hours. The effect used to be that afternoon cases were get lower adenoma detection rates, but this study is different. So probably fatigue and trying to rush and catch up contributes to this finding, but I'm still a bit puzzled by why this effect isn't there in the afternoon cases. Maybe everybody takes a long lunch or something. To drive this home, I think it would be a good idea to compare ADI rates of docs who stay on time versus docs who have chronic delays, especially when cases are delayed for both. And this is just another study showing that the adenoma detection rate has so many factors influencing it, not just the endoscopist skills, but also how well run and efficient your endoscopy center is. That is all I have for you today. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Again, if you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And if you have articles you want me to read, send them to info at gipearls.com or hit me up on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. Some of the articles on this podcast were actually sent in by listeners. So if you have a good article that you think others should hear about, don't be shy. Send them in. That is all. Bye-bye.